Yeah, so far we've had a look at and hopefully thought about that is a renunciation, a radically different way of being with others in terms of bodhicitta, and a little bit more complex that we went into last night, adoption of shinyata, of emptiness, as it's emphasized in the Bhagavad tradition, particularly in the work of Sankhapa. What I want to do now is, in a sense, the rest of the week, kind of flesh some of these things out. Because although we've had a look at them relatively quite briefly, as I almost jokingly alluded to last night, you know, the, the course in Gilukva Tibetan Monastery on what we did last night lasts over three years. <laughs> so if you haven't got the grasp on it yet, I'm not surprised. It's a very long process, really understanding this. So what I want to do with you is start to flesh out some of these ideas, particularly, really, I think the theme for me that's running through a lot of what I'm saying is renunciation. And if, in many ways, well, if we rephrase that, what the Buddha has to say is something very simple. I put it the other night in a very specific way, which is the Buddha says, I teach only two things, Dukkha and the overcoming of Dukkha. I'm I'm never going to be tired of repeating that to you. Because anything that's not focused on that really is very very little relevant to that quotation or paraphrase I gave you from the Chulamalunkya Sutta last night came down to. If you start to ask silly questions, from a Buddhist perspective, you end up dying, suffering. And, well, <laughs> I'm kind of joking about it, you know, dying just leads to rebirth in Buddhism, um, particularly in terms of the traditional viewpoint. So the theme running through is the simple theme, I think, of the Buddha saying, look, the problem you've got requires you to let go. That's what it means, to actually let go. Let go of all forms of grasping. Now as we know that grasping takes many, many forms for us. And I tried to indicate some of those on the first night when I talked to you. The grasping after material things. Or the craving for material things. Uh, specifically within the traditions, it's spoken of as a very specific type of craving. We crave material, sensuous pleasures. Now, I think we can all probably recognise that one in some form or another, that we're all avidly wanting to quench this appetite for more and more pleasures. But as we know, just like any addict, uh, pleasure requires topping up with ever greater levels of pleasure. And so we basically end up becoming those in the pursuit of hedonism of some form. The Buddha indicates to us that that is without end. It never ends at all. 
In fact, it can even continue through into, again in a traditional viewpoint, into another lifetime. The power of that craving is so great. And I don't know if you've ever tried to resist something. You'll feel how difficult it is to do that, talking very practically. Now, here's something you want, whatever it is. You're craving it, you're desiring it. And to actually go, no. <laughs> it actually takes a great deal of effort to do that. It's usually, no, oh well. <laughs> Just this once. <laughs> or something like that. Or, I'll give it up tomorrow. There's many, many versions of that story that we can tell ourselves. Many, many versions of that story. But we also crave in other ways. And as indicated in the psychology material within the Buddhist tradition, we also crave to be forever sometimes. And that's one of the very great things we fear, particularly in the unknown quantity that is called death. Is we don't know what's going to happen at death, and therefore there is a craving to want to continue as me, kind of the me forever syndrome. I would like to be me forever. And on a bad day, <laughs> you think, I don't want to be me at all. And they actually put two labels to this, and they call it the craving for existence, or the craving for becoming, and the craving for non-existence. Sometimes we can actually crave and say, oh, it's all too much. I've just had it. I really don't want to go on any longer. Might wake up the next day, and there's that craving for becoming again. However, the, the three are intermixed. They are perfumed with each other. Because sometimes the craving for sensuality can take the form also of the craving for non-existence. You know, what's known as the Baba Krishna, the Baba Tanha, to actually not be. You, know, you can think of it, can't you? The use of drugs and alcohol and all the kinds of mind-numbing entities that are certainly within most societies, not just Western society, where that sensual pleasure actually numbs, takes you out, even creates, on occasion, oblivion. And so those two can be intermixed. Yet all three, somehow, can be intermixed, because the craving to become can also be mixed with the idea that I want to keep repeating my pleasure. You know? I want to keep going on doing it, doing it, doing it. And part of the fear perhaps of death is the letting go of the pleasures that we know. Of renouncing the known, the joys, the comforts, the drinks, the television, the book, everything, because in a sense that's gone perhaps at death. So that craving for becoming might be linked with the craving for sensuality as well, to keep on repeating and repeating endlessly. 
And so the Buddha's advice, as it echoes through these traditions, is to let go, to release, to release one's grasp on things. That means relinquishing our clinging. In the wheel of life turned upside down, yes, I can't say. <laughs> and in the wheel of life, the depiction that's used as a fastest teaching in Tibetan Buddhism, that is common to all traditions in terms of the teaching that is given, then clinging automatically gives rise to becoming. In the twelve links that form the psychological pattern of our dependency, automatically gives rise to further becoming. And the word in its original language, I think this is interesting, the word upadana means in the original language to fuel. So clinging simply fuels the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. So letting go, really I think is the simple message underlying all of the traditions. They are strategies, they are techniques, they are devices for tricking us into letting, letting go in some way or another. Within the Mahayana traditions they have the term Upayakautanya which actually means skill in means. Oftentimes they just skillful means. It means the skill in the means of doing something. And the whole of the Buddha's teachings can be seen as that device, that trick, that skill in means to get us to release. And so we see many, many different devices employed. Now I'm sure many of you have been on retreats before, some of you perhaps not. But what you will see, even with brief acquaintance with meditative practices, is there are many, many of them all sorts of different types and varieties. Mahamudra is a particularly powerful version of it which encourages the letting go process, the renunciation process. Personally, I don't actually like the word renunciation. It's a kind of really old-fashioned word and sort of smacks of some of the worst aspects of Christianity. Yet, if we just rephrase it into we're here learning to let go of things, then perhaps it has a very, very different resonance to the kind of renunciation you hear heavily within the thoughts of dogmatic Christianity that have been preached. And if we look to the Western context, and I'm going to beginning a bit more of this this evening because I thought, well, perhaps let's not approach everything from the bits of Tibetan textual material. Let's look and see what some Westerners have to say about it. And I think one particular Westerner, and some of you have known me, have known I speak quite a lot about them, is the poet Rilke, the German language poet, writing in the early part of the last century, and in the 1920s, whose insight probably come closest to those 
of Buddhism. For instance, bearing in mind what I've been talking about so far, one phrase he uses out of this particular work, which I'll quote you a bit more from, between our elegies, is that we dwell in this world forever taking leave. Now if one thinks about that, we're in this world forever taking leave. We have no choice, ultimately. Some things we can let go, we can either let go or we can have them taken away from us. Perhaps the same phenomena. Two very different perspectives, isn't it? One volitionally letting go, one having things snatched away from us in transience and impermanence, because that's the way the world is. The one, perhaps, leads to pain and to suffering and to dissatisfaction, and the other, perhaps, is an acceptance and an understanding when we learn to volitionally, voluntarily let go. The danger, I think, often that is perceived in this is that somehow in equating letting go of something, it's somehow uncaring. That we don't care enough if we're prepared to let something go. We don't value it enough. And the word that's often used in the Western context is we're a culture of values, we talk about valuing a lot. And if we don't value something, then we're prepared to relinquish it, prepared to let it go, therefore we don't care. But quite opposite can be the case. Actually genuinely caring, perhaps, for another, caring enough in the sense of real, unconditional love, means exactly that, means being prepared to relinquish and let go. And the point I'm really coming to in the exploration perhaps of more Buddhist material than this is that within Mahayana tradition it speaks very strongly of six perfections to be developed. These are not incidental, they are absolutely necessary on the path of the Bodhisattva. The path of the Bodhisattva, to remind you, which is so intrinsic to the path of the Mahayana and delineates it, distinguishes it from the non-Mahayana path, is that it aims at perfect Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. It aims at undertaking, which in traditional Buddhist terms is an extremely long, arduous, difficult task, opting for it voluntarily through the arisal of bodhicitta through the arrival of Buddhism, of the mind which is 
directed towards awakening. And so the Paramatars are the absolutely necessary, the indispensable condition for entering into the Bodhisattva's path. They become the ground from which the Bodhisattva eventually will attain Buddhahood. Traditionally, six of them are spoken of. Sometimes ten, but it seems apparent from looking at the text that it's the six that are most important. And the fundamental one, which starts off the whole process, and I think it's quite fundamental to all forms of Buddhism, irrespective of whether they're Mahayana or non-Mahayana, is generosity. Is the development of that spirit of generosity. Traditionally known as Dharma. doesn't have any difference in Sanskrit or Pali. The development of that. But it also goes hand in hand with the development of morality. The development of patience, the development of vigour, energy, the development of concentration, and finally, the development of wisdom. I don't like the translation, but that's the one we're usually stuck with. Or insight, understanding. They all feed into each other. It's not a, okay, I'll do generosity today, patience tomorrow. It's not like that. It's not a linear path. It's symbiotic. The, the three, you know, the six are totally interlinked. They divide up again into the three halves. Dealing with the world. We deal with the world here in terms of generosity and morality. We develop special abilities and energy which are ones that we don't normally have and we also develop specific meditative abilities which lead to the arrival of wisdom specifically concentration and meditative kind of procedures some of which we are going through over this week these are all implicated in what it means to become a Bodhisattva. In the tradition, and let me just make this clear, what's being undertaken when somebody takes the so-called Bodhisattva vow here. In the traditions, they have a set of stories. Most of them do. They're very popular. They're known particularly by lay people. and They're used by the monastics in the tradition to teach Buddhist virtues. Basically, they're known as Jataka tales, and you'll find a whole proliferation of them, in particular in the Pali Canon, which detail out the the aspirant who eventually becomes the Buddha, who eventually becomes Hitata Gautama, who becomes known as the Buddha. It details hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lifetimes of self-sacrifice generosity, patience, all of these virtues in order to attain Buddhahood. And so in other words, 
if one has this aspiration, it's not a light aspiration. I think I'll be a better that one. <laughs> it's not like that. <laughs> yeah. All too often, yeah, I see is propagated in the West the you know, taking on of the Bodhisattva vow without really understanding what the commitment is behind it. If one really takes it on board, and I mean, this is within the tradition that I'm talking about here, one is taking on board lifetime after lifetime after lifetime of training, the development of virtues, to hopefully attain that far, far off goal called Buddhahood. So as you can see, it's not a commitment to be undertaken lightly. Yet at its very foundation is the desire to help others to liberation. When we talk about bodhicitta and the rootedness in bodhicitta, then the whole movement from behind bodhicitta comes out of karuna, comes out of compassion for others. It's said that when the Buddha attained awakening, the motivation behind him teaching others at all was he looked around and he saw a tremendous amount of suffering, a tremendous amount of dukkha that surrounded him, and felt moved by it. In the path of the Bodhisattva, relating back to his original commitment, again it was that moved, being moved emotionally by the suffering of others that caused him to enter into the Bodhisattva's path. One has to be moved, in other words, simply by the plight of others. Not simply by one's own plight in this world, one's own suffering, one's own dukkha, one's own problems, if one wants to put it as simply as that, but to recognize that we are living in a world which is saturated with problems with despair, with hopelessness, with all of these things, as well as being, and I don't want to kind of paint a too miserable picture, as well as being full of joy and wonder and wondrous things as well. But when one really looks, you see this dukkha surrounding one continuously, from world events to personal tragedies from the stuff we read in the newspapers to what's going on in our friends and our colleagues and our, you know, just our people, acquaintances, their daily lives. We see it continuously surrounding us. And if you like, if one has the motivation of the Bodhisattva, the generosity of the Bodhisattva, and it starts at the beginning, in the Paramatā, the perfection, one has the generosity of spirit, then one is moved to want to do something about it. One sets foot on the path of the Bodhisattva. And so generosity is at the forefront of this. The traditional way of reading this, of course, is you just give to monks. <laughs> and you build up nice, nice little stashes of karmic merit through giving to monks, and you possibly do. But I don't think that's what's really being indicated. One might even think that the spirit of generosity is there, even in 
the phrases such as loving kindness. To be really generous to somebody doesn't mean to give them lots. Might then just be to give them your time out of kindness. To give a look of recognition. A slight touch of the hand. Anything. You know, you can think of the vast amount of signals which can indicate recognition of another's plight. But it takes skill and it also takes a degree of insight in knowing what to give. Because we can be generous in the traditional, ordinary sense of the world and be giving totally inappropriately. As often is the case, I think, with the giving that we see so prolifically in the West at festival time, for example. We give extremely expensive things to people that already have a lot. We give, and these are not gifts without strings. (laughs) They're gifts demanding presents. (laughs) We demand something back from them as well. So unconditional giving, just like unconditional love, unconditional regard for another, which is really at the heart of the spirit of generosity. Now in early Buddhism, this is not so much true even of the tradition I'm talking about, in early Buddhism it appears when we look at the material that metta on its own, without anything else, appears as if it could have been a path of liberation that the Buddha spoke of on its own. As equally so as the other, for those of you familiar with the term Brahma Zahara, equanimity, for example, compassion. These equally could have been paths to liberation on their own, without necessarily the great development of insight and in terms of the, the sort of things perhaps I was talking about last night. And so learning to give is learning to let go as well. It's learning to relinquish fully and properly, but with, and here's the word, wisdom, with insight. Not just a blind, mindless giving, which is more about salving consciences than anything else. And just so in that very simple term, generosity, is implied a whole wealth of things that perhaps normally go unrecognised when you simply hear that term. Yeah, that generosity is not, to reiterate what I've been saying, about giving lots and lots and lots. It's giving what you have to give. Appropriately. And so that requires insight, understanding. And in fact, there's a phrase in Tibetan tradition that comes very much within the Mahamudra tradition that says, you know, for example, compassion, which is something you know, we're being encouraged within Buddhist tradition to give generously of, of our compassion. Compassion without insight is simply sloppy. But insight without compassion is cold and brutal. 
And so the two have to come together. One has to learn to have insight, but one must learn to have compassion in that insight. So this would be like somebody being, you know, saying, I have insight, I know what the truth is, and I'm going to tell it to you straight. No matter what it does to you. And as you can see, that can be very far <laughs> from being often what people need, particularly in fragile moments, is to be told it straight. We make virtues out of things like truth that in our hands can become untrue. And yet fiction can be true, too. There's a paradox at the heart of that. It means also learning to give generously in perhaps what I was suggesting the other night, or a couple of nights ago perhaps, of bearing witness to things, of just being there for it. That requires generosity. Because normally we are honed down into our cares and concerns. Rather, I would even say our concerns. Our concerns which are fairly well circumscribed. There'll be the projects I've got in hand, they might be immediate family, and they might be a circle of friends who I am concerned about. That doesn't lessen it, doesn't mean I don't care, but it's very narrow, that circle of concern, that very well-delineated path of those who are within my orbit of concern and those who are just placed outside of it. Yeah, I feel sorry for them, but I can't do anything. That kind of attitude. Care perhaps encompasses that much wider field. If I really care, I care unreservedly about what happens to others. And here's also a bit of insight as well. In a lot of cases, we can't do anything. Doesn't mean I don't care. Again. And there might be a futility, an unwisdom, a lack of insight in getting stressed out and anxious about the things I can't do something about. There's an argument that goes on in the Buddhist tradition about whether the Buddha is an omniscient or not omniscient. <laughs> you know, whether the Buddha can see everybody's uh, problems and whether he can help them all or whether he can only see those who are within a limited I opt usually for the probably for the former, but he's not on this yet. He sees those within his area and he's concerned for or careful about them. Careful in the real sense of the word, caring and full of caring for them. And so even as we thought start talking about the first Amata, the first of the perfection. This is what we're striving for in the Buddha path, is a degree of perfection. But of course we're not perfect. We will fail, we will slip, we will fall, to use an old Christian term. <laughs> and there is no problem in that. Because this is living life moment to moment, moment by moment, taking it as, as a title of a book, taking it literally breath by breath. 
because every moment becomes a new opportunity a new opportunity to succeed even when failure has been apparent in the previous moment so we don't have to chastise ourselves we don't have to carry this huge guilt around with us and for those who haven't heard it and I know some of you have it's worth pointing out that in none of the traditional languages of Buddhism is there a word for guilt none of those Asian languages possesses such a term of guilt it's a Christo-Judaic concept in our culture in fact when missionaries went to these Asian cultures they had to try and cobble together a word in the Asian languages to kind of indicate something like guilt because there was no such word <laughs> what they do have is shame there's often a distinction made between shame cultures and guilt cultures now the big difference is that shame has an immediacy you can feel ashamed in the moment but you don't carry it around with you guilt has an historical connotation to it so I can feel as guilty now as I did probably more so actually for something I did 20 years ago <laughs> it's something that has this historical thing within certain theistic traditions of course we have the biggest guilt of all it's called original sin you know, you're guilty for something you didn't even have any part of and you're carrying it around with you. you know, what I call you know, the trouble with being born. <laughs> you know, because you're guilty from the moment of birth in that way of thinking. Now here's another bit of relinquishment for you. <laughs> One has to relinquish our attachment to guilt. Now this is not a problem often for Eastern cultures, but it is one that's very um, specific to Western culture and we have to find a way of relinquishing guilt now in taking away guilt doesn't mean we take away moral responsibility at all and that's important to remember because it still is the knowing of the right from wrong and hence the second of the Paramatas, which I'll go into much more fully tomorrow night. But morality, sila, is the complete development of our ethical sense of being in the world. Without that, forget the meditation and forget the development of wisdom. You might read a lot of texts, you might hear a lot of teachings, you might do a lot of meditation but unless you're trying to do something about your ethical, moral sense of being from a Buddhist perspective you can almost forget it there's a very famous text that was written in the 5th century which I think really exemplifies it it's a huge meditation manual by somebody called Buddha Gosa who was writing in the 5th century, the 400s in Sri Lanka it's called the Visuddhimagga, which means the path to purification, the path to purity. In the Visuddhimagga, he divides the book into three. The very first part is about the development of morality. He says, don't read any further if you don't start to work on this. 
and the rest is on meditation and the development of insight. And so, whether you're a monk or a lay person, irrespective of your status, both have to develop. Now, in turn, there's a difference, obviously, and the difference is basically in the kind of number of precepts that one follows. If you're within Buddha Gosa's tradition, then if you're a monk, you're following 227 of them. If you're a lay person, you follow five. There's quite a little bit of difference there somehow. Um, but it's saying basically you have to observe five basic moral precepts. Yet they are not thou shalt and they are not thou shalt not. They are considered, well, the rule, the actual formulation in the original languages in Pali Sanskrit is their rules of training. They can almost be seen as ways of questioning things. It's not thou shalt not kill, it's I undertake the rule of training to refrain from harming living things. Quite different. One has to make the, yeah, obviously, a lot closer examination to refrain from harming living beings than simply don't kill. Because inadvertently we harm all sorts of things. So we have to think a lot more closely. And I don't, I'll go into this much more thoroughly into tomorrow night. And the important thing is they are not simply thou shalt and thou shalt not. They're meant as forms of ethical inquiry into our ethical sense of being, which underlies the rest of our practice. Coming back to generosity. I was mentioning the fact that to be generous is simply to be there sometimes. Very difficult, isn't it, for us to simply be there and not be there with a solution to a problem, scenario. Friends perhaps present a problem to themselves. One is automatically trying to formulate solutions to their problems, perhaps. I think it's almost something we leap into automatically. Again, unthought of lack of awareness leads us into trying to solve the problem and we're often not listening because we're trying to solve the problem the bit that we've heard already <laughs> rather than listening. So, generosity in this instance might simply being there as witness to what the problem is. So there is a, again, a wisdom here I'm using that kind of static term an understanding or a wisdom in knowing when to remain <coughs> silent. And sometimes, as we know, silence speaks volumes in terms of understanding. That very silence and the quality of the silence itself is very important. There is a silence of understanding and there is a silence of awkwardness. Isn't that? A silence which has to be filled with all sorts of things. There's a very funny story actually. There's a um, Nobel Prize winner, somebody called Heinrich Böhr. Has anybody ever heard of him, Heinrich Böhr? Um, 
Anyway, he wrote a short story, which is a wonderful short story, because he was trying to indicate the different types of silences there were. And it was about somebody who worked in a radio studio. And what he did was edited out all the interviews and stuck together all the silences from the interviews. <laughs> Just to show that there were differences in the silences. You can imagine the politician asking an awkward question. <laughs> with the quality of the silence, or the silence, perhaps, of something like, or someone like a Buddha, when asked the question. There is, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that, uh, yeah, for example, in a sentence like this, actually, the phrase for silence, which is in a sentence like this, is usually called the noble silence. That's a traditional way of referring to it. The noble silence, aria. It's not ignoble. <laughs> A lot of our silences, of course, can also be ignoble. But the point I'm trying to get to, and hopefully I've made anyway, is that even our silence can be a general act. Our silence in bearing witness to all sorts of things, to people in particular, but just being there as the witness, for example, on our walking, bearing witness to the sound, the smell, the trees, the wind, and everything else. Now, let me give you a quote that I think really, really strongly makes the point in a much more beautiful fashion than I can possibly do. Again, this is from, this is from the first of Green Elegies of Rilke. I think, in a very Western way, it makes a point so eloquently. It says, yes, you were needed. Every springtime needed you. Even the stars relied on your witnessing presence. When a gathering wave surged from the past, or when some violin utterly offered itself as you passed by, by a half-opened window. All this was your mission. Did you discharge it? Were you not distracted? I don't think I need to say any more. Distraction itself is the very opposite of generosity. In fact, that filling up of the space that I talked about that can so often occur between human beings is our own distractedness coming to the fore. Rather than a genuine responsiveness to the situation. Careless gestures, too, indicate distractedness. Quite recently, I don't know if many of you saw, any of you saw it, there was an exhibition of 6th century, some of them are slightly older, but mostly 6th century Chinese Buddhists, there's 37 of them, at the Royal Academy in London. Did anybody see this exhibition? Okay. One of the things that struck me in looking at these statues were the eloquence of the gestures. They have a very specific term in Mahayana Buddhism in particular, although it's there within early Buddhism, which is for eloquent gestures, gestures which express an awakened state of mind. They are called mudra. Some of you, for example, might have seen me at the end of every session I do a particular gesture like this. 
which is the mudra, which is the gesture of the mandala. And what it signifies in this particular instance, to give you an example, is the offering of every good thing in the universe for the benefit of all, every sentient being within the universe. So it's flowers and beauty and jewels and everything is offered for the benefit of all. It's a gesture of offering the universe. You can't offer much more than that for the benefit of all beings. Just like the mandala that you'll see at the bottom of the ramp when you go out of the meditation hall. That's just a physical gesture of doing it. But there are many, many other gestures that you see. For example, the Buddha holds his hand up like this in a gesture of fearlessness. And then there are the earth-touching mudra, Bhumisvasa mudra, the touching of the earth to witness the Buddha's achievement of having overcome Dukkha, of having quashed the forces of Mara, which if you like the forces of Mara, your own chattering nasty thoughts, the devil inside your head, not outside. And so there are many, many gestures, and those gestures can be either gestures of they can be full of thought, in other words, awakened gestures, which speak, say something, display in particular insight and compassion, or they can be gestures of thoughtlessness. And give you pause to think in terms of your own life, how many times have you had gestures of thoughtlessness yeah, uh, directed towards you? People literally are not thinking when they give a kind of brush of the hand or wave of the hand or you know, kind of like this. The biggest difference, obviously, is that something the Dalai Lama points out so eloquently is the difference, obviously, in a gesture of that and that, of the consciousness in the open hand. Now the fence this might not be I'm going to hit you, it might just be I'm extremely tense and wound up. Unrelaxed and the gesture of openness, which is the gesture of relaxation. And again I think we have to think through in the spirit of generosity towards others, because this is what's required, our thoughtfulness towards our embodied expression, not just speech. Remember, and particularly Tibetan Buddhism emphasizes again and again, but I don't want to put Tibetan forms on any different level to other forms of Buddhism. It's just that sometimes the manifestations are different. Openness, compassion, it's all going to be there in gestures, facial gestures, gestures of the hand, movements of the body, or they're going to be tense, violent, aggressive, thoughtless, and I could go on, but I won't. So it's really bringing to attention to such a simple thing, such a simple way of being in the world, which is so expressive. <laughs> 
Now, coupling two words together, I've used tonight, and I'm going to finish quite a bit. I think, well, I'd like to open this up for what people think. Not so much me providing answers, but what you think about what I've been saying. That to enter into such a examination of our embodied being, for example, so I'm just using what I've been talking about as an example, requires also a deep sense of generosity towards others. Because it means I'm concerned, I'm caring about others, not to wish to be dismissive, to be expressive of violent, aggressive mental tendencies which are coming out in bodily gestures. That also can be the very spirit of generosity by thinking, being attentive, not thinking in terms of thinking with the head, but bringing it into this heartfelt relation to my being with you all, to my being with others. One phrase, I think, from the Avatamsaka Sutta, which is a very famous, the flower garden sutra, which is very popular in Chinese Buddhism, says the Buddha moves among people with bliss-bestowing hands. <laughs> I wonder how many of us can say that about ourselves. That <laughs> <laughs> we move with those bliss-bestowing hands. So we have to be generous enough to enter into this examination. Mindful approach, aware approach to our being in the world. And if we discover that some of what we do, and this can only be done moment by moment, by the way, that some of what we do is the very opposite of the most bestowing hands or the caring or the compassion that if we are serious about developing on the path to awakening for others, then we have to renounce. It might be that that's the way we've been conditioned since childhood, as defensive measure, for example. And I'm sure we've all, over the histories of our lives, built up quite good defensive measures but if we see they are damaging, that they're the very opposite of what you know, perhaps we're trying to move towards, then we have to make effort. I'm using one of the other parameters here, one of the other perfections. We have to make effort to release, to relinquish. Sometimes that just simply takes training believe it or not, and sometimes Buddhism can be quite behavioristic and says, you know, even if you doesn't feel natural, do it. We can wait all our lives for something to feel natural <laughs> and never do anything. And so in I mean I'd be fortunate enough to work with teachers sometimes and say, hey, what do you mean you're talking about feeling natural? Just don't do it. <laughs> And by doing it, it becomes natural. This is a re 
reprogramming, a reconditioning, but in a very wholesome sense of the word. Let me just finish off with something I hope will um, bring into focus what I've been saying particularly about our embodiment. Let's find it. Rilke dwelt for quite some time in Greece and he too, I think, came to something which was again a questioning about our embodied sense of being and he was very struck by some figures he saw, some ancient classical Greek figures which seemed to express something totally different from our normal embodiment Careful in gesture, did not fingers upon attic, stele, amazu. That's obviously a reference to the ancient Greek statue. This is the important one. Is not love, is not parting, laid on the shoulders so lightly as to suggest that they're utterly, utterly different from ours? Consider the hands, they press lightly for all of their strength. These disciplined people knew much. They knew this. We reach only so far. This much is ours. To touch one another. Like this. I'll leave it at that. Oh. I think there's one wonderful thing about touching, by the way. Mm. Yeah, because it's both literal and metaphorical. How often, again, is our compassion aroused, our sympathy aroused by being touched by what we see around us? Okay, I'll finish there. I told you it would be a very different talk from last night. You spoke about this book you were saying, written by this um, the person in Shalom. Yeah. yeah, about the morality part and the two others, the last thing. Concentration and insight, yeah. Don't morality and insight go together in a sense? Because doesn't morality rely on insight to develop? Eventually, yes, eventually. I think what he's trying to indicate is that we need a basic moral grounding, perhaps to develop it in a really true super sense of really being totally ethical, you need profound insight in that. But just even in our ordinary ordinary daily lives, we need to be trying to do our best morally without the super kind of insight about life. That's what he's really trying to indicate. To use it as a starting point. It has to be the starting point, yeah. Without it, um, without us thinking through our ethical sense of being in the world, you know, the rest really has no grounding. It's nothing to take root in. You know, even my, I mean, I might develop super ethical insights, if one might say that, but they're not grounded in basic practice in what I'm doing. I know what's right, but I'm still not doing it. So start doing it. And then perhaps the wisdom then, or the insight will start to bring forth 
other flowering. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, um, when you mention the question of guilt, how does remorse come in? Remorse, well that's, within the Buddhist sense, it's there within the shame immediately. Yeah, in other words, in the moment of shame, of feeling ashamed, it's not about being judged in others' eyes, but being judged in your own eyes about it. And so it's part and parcel of what's going on in that moment for you. And the remorse, it, again, it's not a word that's particularly used, but it's the renunciation of doing that thing again because of feeling so ashamed of having done it. Yeah. So it's a kind of, what I call an ethical disgust, because you actually, to feel ashamed, you must have known it was wrong. That's the very heart of it. Yeah. And I could explore that further, but I won't do it. Aren't um, shame cultures just as socially coercive in advance as guilt cultures? I mean, it's not... I mean, you're, you're taught what to be shame about aren't you? They can be, yeah. The difference, I, mean, I wasn't really trying to indicate a major difference between uh, the, perhaps the, the conditioning side. What I kind of indicate really is that there's a difference in the way that we hold guilt and shame. But guilt, you know, it can still be with us for years and years and years and years and years. Pardon? Not in the temporal sense of the word, because shame means immediacy. And it doesn't mean carrying over. In fact, it's often been used as the reason why, for example, some shame cultures can actually do horrific things. Because the shame only occurs in the moment and might let them do it in the future. Because you don't carry the kind of guilt around with you. Now shame, I think, fits better into the Buddhist model simply because guilt is something that carries around with you. And it almost, almost presupposes something like a solid subject. Whereas shame is part of the ever-changing pattern of consciousness, which is the way the Buddhist model of the mind works. Still doesn't mean that any act which is bad is condoned. That is, you know, whether it's a guilt culture or whether it's a shame culture, it doesn't matter. The act is not condoned. And however, it does effectively make the punishment perhaps different. Punishment will still be enacted, but most of guilt cultures, think of our own judicial system, despite its many protestations to the contrary, is mainly about retribution, not about change, about you know, affecting some kind of re-establishment. Whereas it's interesting, when one looks at a really, really old sutta in the Diganakaya in the Parikanam, which is called the Satavatthanamu Sutta, um, which is supposed to be about the, the wise king, Chakravata, you know, supposed to be a kind of ethical ruler or king, their equivalent, I suppose, to the judiciary of the days. And it says you know, that the king should punish erring subjects, not out of vengeance, but as a parent would punish a child, but out of love, to stop them from erring again. So that's the difference. One is about rehabilitation, and the other is about retribution. Can be. 
and I see certainly within our society mostly our judiciary is about retribution, not about rehabilitation. Purification yeah. of karma. I didn't quite hear. Sorry, it's quite a long way. Purification of karma. Yeah. Would you put that something in your explanation? Yeah, it's all. In a sense, what all of what I've talked about really is about karma because it's about action. Um, as I think I said to you the other night, we can't be in this world without acting. It's the quality of our actions and the quality of the intentions behind our actions that's important. So, when we're talking about purification of karma, really what we're reckoning about, what we're coming to grips with, is a letting go of bad karmic habits. Nasty habits, really. But all of us have, all of us possess. Now, some of those will be, you know, I think your question the other night about the unconscious, some of those will be accessible to consciousness at the state, consciousness at the state, some of them will not be. Those that can't come into the conscious medium for examination might have a kind of deterministic quality to it. In other words, unless I examine very deeply, and this is why meditation, by the way, is so, so important in Buddhist tradition, because it's the very technique where one makes the unconscious conscious. It's that bringing up of deeply, deeply embedded habit formation and ways of dealing with things that often when we're just engaging in them are not obvious to us at all. We don't see them. It might take others to point them out often, but we don't see them as such. And so karma is, you know, the, what you're calling purification of karma, is really about the bringing up and the relinquishment of those propensities for behaviour, those conditioned ways of reacting. So then, if I may carry one step further into the immediate, as I sit with my aging friends and so forth, and I see trying to make say, perhaps someone putting it in a le- little less eloquent fashion is people droning on and on. <laughs> well, it depends on what the need is that's being expressed. One, you know, it's, again, the development of insight, development of knowing how to deal with it, knowing how to deflect it, knowing how to sometimes even turn it back on the person that's doing this and to, to 
to encourage them perhaps on certain occasion to see the self-indulgent nature of it because a lot of it could be repetition and just again and again and again and again but it takes a great deal of patience and it takes a great deal of skill to turn it round and to get somebody to see something through what they're doing to you sometimes it might be that you just have to endure patiently and a good training for you to watch the irritations, to watch the automatic tendencies arising in your own, my, own mind, like, I want to get out of here. <laughs> I don't think I can stand another minute of this. <laughs> Things like that. You know, this is the perfection of one of the other sections we're going to go and talk about, patience. Yeah. And generosity, too, because generosity of spirit is involved even in, in enduring, sometimes, the unendurable. Yeah. But there is no, and I'll make this clear, there's no one answer you know, to scenarios like that. Every instance is different, because every person is different, every need being expressed through those soliloquies is different. And it's really, you know, rather, you know, what tends to happen is you might get a number of friends like that who are expressing this kind of neediness and talking a lot and not really listening or perhaps even wanting to communicate with you. Yet the neediness behind it is often very different. Yet our response to it is usually exactly the same. <laughs> it's kind of a blanket response to that kind of happening rather than different responses to the different happenings which are being expressed. in things like not just the, the constant torrent of words but the phrasing, the intonation, the feeling that's coming through, because yeah, those are very different, aren't they? Yeah, there can be, literally, there can be the, the bore, but there can be the somebody who's expressing something through their very, just the very quality of the voice itself, which is saying something different than others and all the words that are coming out. So it really means listening acutely, hearing acutely, seeing acutely. Big task, isn't it? <laughs> no, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sort of connected to that, um, you said about doing the right thing until it feels natural. Mm. And I was trying to think of examples of that, and I was trying to ask you it feels as if I could at first seem quite inauthentic. Hmm. Yeah. What, what, kind, what kind of things are you thinking of when you said that? <laughs> 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 All sorts of things. Um, but, well, since the one I've been talking about is generosity. You know, perhaps Suzanne's example is a very good example of that. You know, it doesn't sit comfortably to sit comfortably with somebody doing that to me. Yeah, that might might be a training, for example, in patience, which is a, a doing thing. It's not just a kind of passive quality. It's a doing. Um, and also it might be generosity. An example is a certain teacher um, in my past said to me, you know, sometimes... For example, we're not generous by nature. You know, we're generous in certain things, but certainly not in other things. It's finding out where we're not generous and actually doing it. Yeah. 
Now, it might be that we're generous in kind of all sorts of things to do with our time and all that sort of stuff, but when it comes to money, we're not. And so it might just require us to do that or vice versa, for us to feel what it's like to do it. Now, it's not going to necessarily... We have these big words in the West, don't we, like authenticity and inauthenticity, and basically they're, they're blocks on doing things. <laughs> Often, yes. Yeah. doesn't feel authentic, yeah. It sounds to me like self-indulgence, basically. It's kind of useful, I think, because if you have a question of authenticity, it's something to do with your distance between where you are and where you're wanting to be. Yeah, it's quite possible, but I think, you know, coming back to the Buddhist model, I think the Buddhist model is quite simple. It's sort of, it's... um, the behavioristic model, on certain counts, not totally, but on certain counts, is it engage in the behaviour and see what it feels like. Whether that comes natural or feels authentic or not. Again, I mean, if I'm thinking about the word authentic itself, you know, it's generally derived from existentialism and inauthenticity as well, and actually bad translations even of the German terms which made them up in the first place. I mean, the German terms really mean something like um, owning who you already are, you know, or becoming or owning that which you already are. Now, in the existentialism I'm thinking of, that actually means being an open temporal horizon for the arrival of things. Yeah, so, I think it's one to get put in English, it gets these funny connotations. Yeah, and it's become this new age. Reality fixed as well, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it is. It becomes very jargonistic. Yeah, but it could not be very pleasant to be on the receiving end of someone's experimenting. I think I personally, as I was speaking personally, I can only say personally, I think I'd rather be on the receiving end of somebody trying to do something good than doing something bad. <coughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Remember also it's, behind, it's important to try and develop the quality of the intention behind the act too. So it's not just that you know, I'm going to be completely random by <laughs> my, my laying this on you. <laughs> yeah, it requires a degree of skill in doing it. But I, I was just thinking of your model of the other night of the billiard table, you know, and you were saying that the, the, the ball hits the on the ball and you don't really know where it's got to go. Mm. But presumably there are, there are kind of basically two sides of the table, one good and one bad. That's right. Yeah, we know the only thing we can know is that unwholesome acts will give rise to unwholesome consequences. Whereas wholesome acts will give rise to wholesome consequences. So it's the intention, again, that's being important behind the act. Buddhism is, is nothing if not intention oriented. You know, that's, if you like, the, the moral dimension of the Buddha within his own society, taking something which was there within his own society, the doctrine of karma, which was just about religious rights and actions, 
and saying actually it was not it was about performance or good or bad performance of those actions, it was about the intention behind the action in the first place. And we can think of a very good example, you know, when I kill a rabbit and I'm driving my car, the intention is not to kill the rabbit. Yet if I go out with a shotgun, looking for the rabbit to kill, my intention is to kill. But the same action is involved, perhaps in killing. In fact, so it's the intention behind it that's important. But not for the rabbit. The rabbit's karma. <laughs> Yeah, it is very much it's very much about the do- what am I intending to do by my act? That's what it's about. Now obviously we know, for example, I mean the, the phrase in English isn't the best intentions were paved the road paved to hell. <laughs> you know, that uh, sometimes good intentions don't always end up with good results. So the common consequence behind that intention would be quite would be behind the consequence would be quite different than if I'd deliberately gone out to foul things up behind it. So yeah, if nothing else, I mean I really don't want to get into kind of big metaphysics about karma. If nothing else, what the doctrine of karma is meant to do is make you examine what's going on. What, what yeah, are you kidding yourself in doing this? What's the quality behind what you're actually doing? Yes, here I am being truthful to you. <laughs> What's the quality of my intention behind that? Because, you know, truth is a virtue. But what's behind it? Because you know, we know truth can be a weapon that can be used to hurt, to really you know, make somebody squirm behind it. Now, if the quality, if the intention is that behind it, then it's doing harm to others. Violates the first precept. <laughs> so it's really the doctrine of karma just make you examine all of that really. Well isn't it also you know this word that you use process that it's not necessarily about results but about engagement with that process. Yeah, it's disengaged with the process because even with good karma, you know, even even by, even if my intention is good, I don't know what the consequences are going to be of it. I simply don't, because you know, it's that unpredictability thing again. You know, somebody might get some good consequences out, and then but they take the karma ball and run with it <laughs> somewhere else, doing all kinds of other stuff. You know, you just can't predict whichever way it's going to go. But it's about that examining, examination of what's going on in our own mind, as clearly as we can possibly be. Hence the reason for mindfulness, awareness. Without it, we haven't got a clue what most of our intentions are. That, that's you know, kind of the point behind much of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. We don't know what a lot of our intentions are behind our acts. 
I might think I'm being good, but actually I'm trying to wound. Yes, it does make sense. It's about again, it's about examination of the quality behind what you're doing. Can you could? I mean, there's a lovely experiment. Just some of the lie to what you're saying. There's a lovely experiment. It's not coming from Buddhism, but it's coming from Nietzsche. And he had this kind of experiment, in a sense, test out ethical action. And it's called the the thought of the eternal return of the same. Not different, but the eternal return of the same. You know, in other words, we've all been doing this before. <laughs> exactly in the same fashion. Now, what he's saying is, is that, you know, uh, he puts in beautifully poetic fashion, actually. He says, if a little evil demon sat on your shoulder and whispered in your ear um, something like, this is all going to happen exactly the same again, in every detail, would you throw yourself down on the floor and gnash your teeth, or would you say yes and yes again? <laughs> That's a hell of a test, isn't it? As to whether you think your actions in this world are something you can affirm. And it's the affirmation of the intention behind it that's important. So it's about the way that we have to, you know, come into the relationship between our thought processes that motivate our actions so much so that we say, I couldn't have done any otherwise, therefore I can actually say yes to what I've done. Now in a lot of cases we don't, we actually vacillate. <laughs> and say, yeah, in a different circumstance I might have done something different, or given all this life over again I would have done things differently. <laughs> all these sorts of things. And that really is not really saying, well, my intentions behind it were clear to me, behind what I'm doing. And so it's getting the clarity of that, I think, is important. I've heard um, uh, analogy between the Buddhist training and, uh, as it said, or I heard somebody say, it's like learning a language, as much as. First of all, the things that we ask to do, you mentioned that they feel sometimes not authentic, but I mean, to learn a foreign language, it does many things for And it's a question of persisting in that, and learning that there's something could be going to go out of town. You just kind of learn by experience, can't you? The other thing is that it's about failing, about trying and failing at it, and having to sort of pick yourself up and stop working, keep up again persisting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a very good analogy, analogy with learning a foreign language because one, one of the things that obviously you have to do learning languages doesn't take great intelligence it's required to have a good memory and be able to mimic things engage in the behaviour you know, so somebody's learning French becomes more French than a Frenchman <laughs> basically 
you know, I remember when I was learning some of the languages I know, you kind of just imitate, you become even more so, over the top, really, um, in, in, in mimicking all of the behaviour that goes behind even the expressions. So I think it's a very, very good analogy. That's exactly what it is, until it becomes natural. Until it becomes naturalised. So I think it's a very, very good analogy for, for, for dealing with that. Um, and it takes, takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice. Yeah, it's not something as simple. And the second point, really, I can't help but agree with either. <laughs> it's a good, good reflection. So, yeah. In the training of equanimity and learning to let things be, mm-hmm. again, I'm trying to learn in the language to understand. For example, again, my friends are grandmothers, and they say to me, we had another baby. And my immediate response within is, for God's sake, we're already overloaded. So, now that's my inner response. It is really, I would like intentionally to say something that would make people stop reproducing for a while. (laughs) 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 That sounds like a verbal condom. (laughs) 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 Yeah, but I mean, you, I do think what you mean. But, I mean, we can talk about equanimity, but there's one of the other Brahman Zaharas, actually, which one I didn't mention this evening, which actually is a really important one, um, and that's called sympathetic joy. <laughs> you know, in other words, it's developing joy for somebody, you know, for what people are doing and what they're having, uh, and even their pleasures, even if you don't share it yourself. That's really good. We're really grumpy, aren't we? That other people's joy. <laughs> yeah, we're going to indulge in their miseries, you know. Let's, oh, let's go and have a good chat about your horrible things you've gone through. Well, the moment says, yeah, how are you think that? I'm feeling really good and really elated. Oh, how horrible. <laughs> so, actually, engaging in sympathetic joy. You know, I'm really glad you've won the lottery. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's just one of the most difficult things we can do. Yeah, that's exactly in that kind of instance what you're talking about, which you have, that, that we have to develop. It might not be something we want to um, have our own personal inclination, but to have joy in another's joy about an event is again something which is generous, greatly generous of spirit, because it's not my way of being. And I might not like to see it, but you are getting joy from it. You are experiencing you know, pleasure from it. So it's not just equanimity, it's joy as well, sympathetic joy, more detail. So. Um, again, we're Yeah. 
and um, so that seems to me like an important component in a way of generosity or, or something that comes before generosity. And just wanted if you just want to reflect on that and also on in the Tibetan Buddhist path, how generosity is, um, how forgiveness is generated other than through like kindness is there any other. I think loving kindness, compassion, all those sorts of things are central. They're no different from other forms of Buddhism, but I totally agree with you about um, forgiveness. Forgiveness is, again, remember the, the basic characteristic of forgiveness is letting go. Letting go. Not dismissing. Not dismissing. Not saying this didn't happen because something's happened if somebody's hurt you, for example. But it's letting go of the sedimented ways of feeling about that event. Again, if I was quoting Rilke, I mean, so much of what happens in relation to things in life, he says, are like habits that move in and don't leave. They're like these habits that sort of take up residence in your head. You know, so in other words, X has happened to me in my past, I have a response which is a habitual response to that. And so what's required in the forgiving process is a letting go of the conditioned response that I have to that event. Generating other possibilities of being with it. Um, forgiving another is really letting go of the hurt that they've done to you. Not dismissing it, not condoning it, by the way. And I always make those clear. But it's coming into a different relationship. That's what forgiveness really is. It comes into a different relationship with the hurt done to me with the, the letting go of it. The letting be. The letting be. And you know, the great um, Buddhist antidotes to that are. The great Buddhist antidotes to this are compassion, loving-kindness, equanimity, patience, sympathetic joy, and actually list them all out. And they're no different within the tradition. They're really no different within the tradition. The thing, that, um, the thing that's impressed me the most, I think, during my time here is, uh, is, the, um, is the power of awareness, the power of mindfulness. Mm. Um, to cut earlier and earlier and earlier. You know, that, that sort of renouncing. Really, you know, I see that as a creation, renouncing those thoughts that are leading mm. you know, the pathway that I've been down Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, cutting is a very good phrase. Um, in the Tibetan tradition, as within the Mahayana tradition in general, the, the figure who's usually depicted for wisdom is something called Manjushri. Manjushri wields the sword to cut through, if you like, the ignorance that binds us to certain forms of behaviour. So it flashes through, cuts through. In relationship to the kind of particular phenomena you're talking about, the bringing of awareness is the bringing of awareness between what happens at the point of contact and the feeling that arises. Because the feeling is a conditioned feeling. In the 12 links, again, of the, on the Wheel of Life, which 
characterize dependent arising, you get contact, sparsha, or pasa, and then you get the arisal of Vedana, which is the same in both languages, Hani and Sanskrit. So you get contact and seeing. What this indicates is that the moment you know, I see something, that's the point of contact. We have six senses in which we contact objects. In those six senses, we, you know, if I'm taking the, the sight, the ocular metaphor as being the predominant one, we see something, and automatically springs into um, action, like, dislike, neither like nor dislike. And so what you're cutting is the automatic response to it. Yes. Here's a person coming along the street, like them, cross the road to see them, speak them. Here's a person coming along the road, dislike. I'll cross the road and disappear down the blind alley <laughs> to avoid them. <laughs> Here's somebody coming along the road, neither like nor dislike, just passing by. And that's our reconditioned responses. And so what you're doing is, is working on, by developing mindfulness, to create a gap between, if you like, stimulus and response. That's what you're trying to do, create a gap between the stimulus and the response. Because, as I was saying the other night, a la Pavlov, you know, we're just salivating or not salivating, dependent on what's being presented to us, because we're just conditioned. We're conditioned beings. That's what it means by conditioned. That our likes, our dislikes, and our neither likes nor dislikes are conditioned phenomena that keep repeating themselves. So, you, you know, what you're saying about awareness is, is exactly what's going on there. Yeah. So, so mindfulness is actually slowing things down? Yes. Yeah. Mindfulness is slowing things down so you get a chance to actually create a gap between the stimulus and the response. That's why taking so much longer to do washing up there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because possibly for most people, the, stimulus, you know, the response to that is don't like it. Get it over and done with as quickly as possible. <laughs> Why is meditation not considered the most important thing? Because it seems to me that it's that, it's the creation of that gap that actually makes any kind of change or behavior possible. It's not considered not to be important, it's the the keystone of the transformation. But on its own, not supported by morality and not supported by understanding, it's fairly ineffective. So, good, yeah. Within the traditions, it would be considered. It would be considered ineffective without a thorough understanding of, um, for example, I mean, to take Theravada tradition, I've been speaking obviously mostly about Theravada, certain traditions. In Theravada, one has to have a basic understanding of what the Buddha is saying, to investigate it, to apply the meditative process, and to develop one's morality. It's it's an integrated path. And so, meditation takes its part within the integrated path. The problem in the West, from the traditionalist point of view, is we take a bleeding chunk out of the integrated path. We practice meditation often in a vacuum, without the support of what... Why are you doing it? Yeah, I mean, mean, even without... Well, from my own experience, I mean, even without, really, the kind of theoretical moral framework of Buddhism, mm. the simple act of a day of civic meditation, you know, just by creating that space, mm. 
I think that, I think that's right, but I think the response would be you could only develop so far. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. You could perhaps gain calm, you might gain some um, basic sense of relaxation and peace. But you wouldn't develop what the Buddhist path is really about, which is penetrating insight into the nature of what is. Why? Because that requires you to, for example, really take on board what a basic Buddhist teaching, such as impermanence. Because ultimately, for example, what you're going to be examining is the impermanent nature of the phenomena in Vipassana, in insight meditation. Now, in other words, it requires us to even take on board the notion of impermanence, even just in an intellectual way, in order to start the investigation. But doesn't meditation give you an immediate experience of that? Well, it does. Not always. Not always. Oh, right, okay. Sometimes meditation can simply be out creating calm. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of meditation, for example, is practiced in the West, outside of this context. I'm not, not disparaging it, I'm just saying it's different. Uh, and that it, it can take you to a point, but it can't take you any further. And that's why the Buddhist path is considered to be an integrated path. Mm. Yeah, three dimensions. Mm. Yeah, meditation is an extremely important third of that path. But it's not the be-all and end-all of it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.